0: Welcome to the Doctor Patient Forum, a no-holds-barred patient advocacy podcast discussing why millions of pain patients continue to suffer, but most importantly, who caused the suffering. Join us weekly as we discuss how you can help end the untreated pain crisis. Before we get into
1: this podcast, as always, I just want to give a quick shout out and huge thank you to all the patrons who have subscribed to our Patreon page since our last podcast. So huge thank you and shout out to... Mystified Laura, DG, Claire, Scene, Lee, Linda, Donna, Cindy, Cass, Suzanne, Comrade Jill, Dawn, Tammy, Natasha, Mary Rose, Lynn, Michelle, Becca, and Carol. Our podcast today is with Dr. Stanton Peel and Zach Rhodes. I actually included some of the discussion before we actually introduced Zach and Dr. Peel because it was really, really interesting and I wanted you guys to get to hear it. So you're going to hear a little bit of that discussion before you hear Claudia introduce our guests today.
2: Uh, I live in Vermont. So I work at a school in South Burlington, Vermont. It's an elementary. I have worked for a whole elementary school district. And I'm Mm -hmm. a counselor in the district. And then um, I used to work at a high school. You're a consultant.
0: And this is like K through eight or K through five. What is this where you're a consultant? Uh,
2: The the school is K through five. I work as a counselor there. Oh, um, cute. And then I do family consultation on just kind of on my own. It it wasn't something that I uh, went out and started an LLC for because I was interested and then wanted to get clients. But families asked me for support and so I just started doing it the more business oriented way so that that there's no liability for it yeah um so then I um I met up with Stanton I started a podcast and I was writing I met Stanton through podcasting and then he said well I have this program that we're starting to get online now Hmm. you know it was a residential place but it kind of got co-opted by people who have this idea about what addiction is and it's kind of now it just fits the standard boxes he said I just can't do it my livelihood my outlook values I can't do that so he moved it online so it's accessible to people and he could just do his own thing and then I started working with that program and now that's what we do
1: yeah I love watching Stanton
0: I watched a video of him we had another guest who also had an online program Mark Sharon
2: yeah we know Mark really well Yeah. Yeah, You guys have
0: similar some similar views with them, right?
2: Yeah. Actually we were just talking to them. I I think I just went on their podcast and we were just talking about it's hard for us to tell sometimes what our differences are. I think it's which but emphasis we place on on what. I mean we're Stanton and I are not so yes, we are involved in trying to disabuse people of any mythology that could be hurtful to them or their families or anything like that. Although our focus is like somebody comes to us because they feel like they have an issue, and we say, "Well, let's think rationally about how you can better your life in your your terms." And I think that the those guys from the freedom model, uh, we, I, they wouldn't mind me saying, they're they're very much honed in on, I, "I'm going to completely rid you of all the mythology you've ever heard in your life," and that's where our focus is going to be.
1: Yeah, they're like deprogramming people, deprogramming which it's hard. To, it's hard to do. I mean, that the the this di- people are so die hard sold out on this broken brain disease model of addiction. And if you don't agree with it, like I posted something the other day because I've been like binge watching all your videos. And I'm like, so I posted something on Twitter the other day about it saying like, there's no, it's interesting that there's no evidence behind this broken brain disease model of addiction. And and everyone believes it. But now, because they don't want to give pain medication, all of a sudden, like I have Crohn's and Claudia has Crohn's. So Crohn's and lupus and RA, all of a sudden that's treated like a fake, not chronic illness and it's like flip flopped. And someone's like, oh, so you must think that all people with addiction should be thrown in the trash. I'm like, you got that? Cause I said it's not a broken brain disease. Like how does yeah, that- Yeah,
2: that's, that's a strange dichotomy. Like either, yeah. you know, the the idea that it's a one dimensional, possi- you know, line of possibilities, it's either uh, someone's diseased and completely helpless and something right. over their brain or they're horrible human beings. Like, right, they're right. But the agency and the fact that they could make mistakes in their life or that's not right. the right path is, means that they're bad. That, that's just... <laughs> Last yeah time. yeah mm-hmm.
1: Maya is the one who God God bless her I asked her a gazillion questions over the years and she I think she called it the learning model like the sort of middle ground like you're not totally taken over like a zombie but you also it's not a hundred percent your fault where you like are this awful horrible horrible human being but I sort of feel like I don't know I mean I'd like to talk to Stanton about it too but I sort of feel like it's stigmatized I don't understand how it's not stigmatizing to say to someone you're broken for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do just deal with it and then they're like oh that's giving them compassion how how is that giving them compassion it just seems that's
2: i feel that way too i mean if if that those are the choices if you haven't thought about it and then all all of a sudden somebody you like or love has this condition it's it's nice it feels nice for a moment to say yeah um something wasn't their fault but um stanton and i wrote a book called outgrowing addiction which is about what you're saying it's like i I work with kids and there are kids who you can't diagnose every kid who you think might have a problem in your school so like educators that I work with are probably the most commonsensical people that I meet in, in some ways. It in that you don't tell a kid you're completely broken or you're you're lying. Yeah. you know, we can guide you. There are, you know, it's increasingly people are diagnosed in schools for things that who know you know, a diagnosis is just a yeah. set of possible conditions in your life. It doesn't mean so so there is like a, a thread of mythology that happens among kids yeah. that maybe you've seen. But, but- there's
0: no <laughs> money. There's no money in being honest, Zach.
2: There's That's so true. much
0: money in getting these people on Suboxone forever yeah. and ever yeah. and ever. Yeah. And every third phone call I receive, I don't, I've never struggled with addiction. So I, I can't say I can appreciate what these people are going through, but put the Suboxone Dental Decay lawsuit on a map, on the mm. map. And I've made not a lot of friends because no, of that people lawsuit. people get mad. But these poor people, and it's being prescribed off-label for pain. That's why I, I was so, I had to be that this vocal about it. But they're told... Like one lady, I was on the phone with her. She's like, well, yeah, the doctor told me. He's like, don't be so hard on yourself. You're going to be on this medication for the rest of your life. I said, oh, my God. I said, said, why would anybody ever say that? I said, do you realize that they're taking your power from you?
1: Mm -hmm. They won't let them
0: come off, though.
1: They're going to their doctor saying, I'd like to try to wean off to see how I do. And the doctors won't let them. And I don't understand that. They're not allowing them to.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, there's... uh... This is something we talked about recently, also, um, Stanton and me. So you're talking about for people prescribed uh, like Suboxone or, or Methadone for for addiction. It seems and more there's...
1: often Suboxone. Like these Suboxone pushers don't seem to want Methadone even to be an option right now.
2: It, that, that might be true. Yeah. It's funny. Um, this is where Maya and I, Maya and Stanton, diverge a little bit. Yeah. And it's like a, it's a really interesting debate because I, where Maya is coming, Maya Solovitz is coming from is you know she'll say. Look, there's drugs that are kind of like the drugs people want to take and they should be available. And if you if people are able to take drugs in large populations, when we study them, it shows that there's less the death rate, you know, is cut by some number. Usually it's yeah. around 50 percent. And so how could you knock it? And then what we say is yes. And then also, how can you do that without calling them medications? Because if there's a medication, yeah. then it's for an illness and so there's but with the medication you're selling you're also selling an ideology to a person that there's something broken about them yeah
1: Yeah, and i do think though that broken disease model played very well for litigation and to get these grief-stricken parents to say my kid did this, it had nothing to do with like, it. Like, it's completely the fault of pharma and the doctor who prescribed it. Let's all go after the Sacklers for the rest of our lives and make it about that. And, but then we can't say that without being like, you're Sackler bootlickers. I'm like, I don't give a shit about the Sack. I don't care. Like, they're, <laughs> Sackler they're pharma. Bootlicker. They're all, uh, uh, yeah, uh, they think I like, we're, they think we're like relatives. I'm like, I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> you can't talk about this without being accused of like supporting the Sacklers, like, yeah
0: yeah my, no. my long lost uncle <laughs> yeah, the yeah. Hi, Stanton. nice to
3: meet you yeah
0: hi
1: oh
3: hello everybody
0: oh thank
1: you for coming i'm so excited i told zach like i binge watched all your videos i'm so the first video i found Split. of yours was your dope sick one and then from there i went like the one you did about california with lemke I, that the one you called you said her dopamine drac that's what i've been calling it ever <laughs> since you said that dopamine drac like that's a perfect i think i'm gonna name that podcast series mm. that but <laughs>
3: yeah you guys are coming to this very much from the pain relief direction?
1: Yeah. Claudia and I both have Crohn's disease. We were both treated like garbage around the same time and found each other on social media. Uh, Neither of us have ever struggled with addiction, um, but I was treated horribly in the hospital. I was hospitalized for kidney stones and then uh, they wouldn't treat my pain at all and just told me that I was too high risk of addiction because I had a history of, of childhood abuse. And that got me studying and researching and we have like she has like 300,000 followers on TikTok because n- no one can get their pain treated anymore. They're taking stable people and 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 sending them to the streets basically is what's happening and and suicide when they were fine before, they never would have overdosed. They never would have had any issues. Been stable for decades and now all of a sudden not only treated like 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 garbage. I mean they're 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 gaslit and 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 they're made fun of and they're mocked and yeah, it's a bad It's
3: sort of like uh like the racial theories of the nazis it's sort of like i say that all the time you're a drug addict so we can't let you in here you know yeah. you can't say to them i'm not using these drugs for fun or i'm not a drug addict or i haven't used." you're not allowed to declare yourself even though you're in the hospital
1: you're not. And the thing is, they make us, here's the thing. Doctors are made every, every month to show their patients have not developed an addiction. And patients are made every month to prove through random pill counts, random urine screens, questionnaires. We have to call pain management to ask if we can go out of town when we go, because if they want to do a random pill count, they're made We're made to show that we are not someone who has developed any kind of misuse, addiction, whatever you want to call it. And then doctors are also made to prove this. But then when we say, i i don't have an addiction then all of a sudden the harm reduction people come at us saying well why you think you're better what makes you think you're better than us and i'm like i don't but there has to be a separation like you have something i don't i have something you don't would you want to be treated for Crohn's when you don't have it like i'm just saying like don't make us prove that we have not developed any kind of misuse issue uh if you don't want us to say we haven't developed a misuse issue and those who have 100% deserve everything. Like I I think what's happened is that people who were cut off, people who were on OxyContin, who were using it for possibly OUD, self-treating themselves with OUD, and were cut off, resent that we still had access. And they'll say like, why didn't you fight for us? And I'm like, because I didn't know about you. I didn't know that this was going on until it hit me.
3: And now, of course, I think everyone deserves. So one of the things you were saying is, well, what if they are using it? You know what I, I mean? Who like, cares? I don't know, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Sly Stone just released his biography. He's 80 and he quit crack in, in 2019. All right, so of course he had a lot of money. And he said, you know, I like it really well enough. I would still use it, except it was hurting my health. He's 80 now. See, that's now.
1: it. Like, that's the whole thing. Like, our government with the Controlled Substance Act, they determined it's only okay to use, like, opioids for physical pain only. And, like, they made this this separation. And, and because of that, that... But why? Why? And But, you know, it's funny with Suboxone. Now they're like, well, that helps depression too, and that's good. But then if it were oxycodone, that helps depression too and
0: that's bad. Where do you come up with these
1: rules and ideas?
0: Hey folks, welcome to this episode of the Dr. Patient Forum Podcast. Today we have joining us Zach Rhodes and Stanton Peel. And Zach is a counselor at the Life Process Program. Uh, And he's also worked here with Stanton, obviously. And Bev is going to link all of Zach's information here. And we've got Dr. Stanton Peel. Stanton is a psychologist, an attorney, psychotherapist, and the author of 29 books. The reason that we wanted you two gentlemen on our podcast is we are both well, vocal pain patient advocates. And uh, once my advocacy, my advocacy led me to people with addiction. And I feel like every third message I receive is from somebody who wants to come off of Suboxone and they're always being dissuaded, discouraged. And Beth is coming at this from, well, she's also interested in learning about this broken brain model, because I feel like the anti-opioid wackos, one in particular, Anna Lemke, another one, Mark Sullivan, they're like mice where one is, that's where they go. And Mark Sullivan recently said that pain patients shouldn't be allowed to make decisions on their own. And basically they've tackled this as all of our brains have been hijacked. And we wanted you gentlemen on this show for, you know, for some insight Because it seems like, like I said, every third person that contacts us wants to come off of Suboxone. And they're being discouraged. and now people are telling me, "Well, I have um, an addiction. I have a disease of the brain, so I'm going to be on this, on Suboxone or, or whatever they're using for the rest of my life." And Stanton, it looks like you were way ahead of your time discussing the brain disease model of addiction. Uh, can you explain a little bit why? Do you believe that addiction is a brain oh. disease? <laughs>
3: You're let me take one step backwards. Are you guys in California? Part yeah. of the constitution of California and a number of other states, there are patient rights built into the constitution that you're allowed <laughs> to get pain relief. Right.
0: And and yeah, so California, California does have a pain patients bill that's gone sorely ignored for many years now, unfortunately. And Stanford Medical
3: School has that built in. And, and that's, it's sort of like, well, that's, like, you, humane, right? I mean, what are they going to, like, put you in a hospital and do an op? What is this, like, um, they put you on the rack in the Middle Ages? Yeah. I mean, it's just, like, normal humanity. So Anna Lemke is one of the great spokesmen for not taking opioids. She's a head psychiatrist at Stanford Medical School, and she's in violation of it. They, they you can go to their website, and it says patients have a human basic right To relief of pain. It's sort of like patients have a right not to be put on the rack. You know what I mean? So ironically, the concept of a disease of addiction, supposedly, it comes from Americans being crazy about drugs and alcohol. That's where it comes from. And the ironic thing is this really gets complex. In the 19th century, you were allowed to just go out to the street and buy uh, opiates, I mean, people could buy laudanum, which was opium-tincturated in alcohol. And then somewhere around the 20th century, modern medicine appropriated it and said, oh, you can't do that. We're not going to let you do that anymore. It's illegal. And they owned it. And so that what we're talking about is who owns your right to decide when you use a substance and when you need it. And what its effect is on you. Who's in charge of that? And in any ordinary society, especially one that's supposedly like a free society, you're not allowed to murder people and grab their opioids. But we already have all those laws. You know, you're not allowed to steal, you're not allowed to kill people, you're not allowed to assault people. So, how did we come up with this law? that you're not allowed to take opioid based medication. And so they've developed an entire mythology called the disease theory of addiction, which says, well when you take an opioid, you have a disease. You can't control it. So one of the things that I do and Zach does, I'll go to a large audience. You know, there'll be I've been in an audience of I don't know, five hundred people. There you can see it on videotape and I said, Oh, has anybody in this room ever taken an opioid painkiller? everybody raises their hands that's right i mean and they say well how many of you became addicted to it and then nobody raises their hands and i say wait wait one second you're probably really being shy some of you probably really had it." did anybody in this room take an opioid painkiller and then think wow that was pretty good i'd like to keep doing that and then like a handful of people raise their hand and then i'll say well did you And they'll say, well, no, because my pain went away, you know, and I didn't want to, you know, what am I going to do? Start scoring, you know, heroin? I'm not going to do that. And then I have a job and I have kids. So we're taking something which fits into the normal pattern of human behavior. I mean, people do something for a purpose. Some people a few a small percentage less than 5 maybe 1% go off track and then what do you do with them well you say well perhaps this isn't the best thing for you maybe we could try and work with you in some other way on the other hand if you're getting a pure version of an opioid nothing that bad's going to happen to you yeah and then, that's right you know that's you as long as as long as you're not taking something you bought from a guy in the corner you know in the inner city so we've created a solution for a problem that we invented that's right created a whole new problem and it causes death i, mean, I love are... that we created yep. a solution
1: for a problem we invented that's a perfect sentence because that's exactly what happened
3: and Pe- then and in doing so we've created a real problem And so the most amazing statistic, of course, is we started cutting back opioid painkiller prescriptions in 2011, and instantaneously, drug deaths increased. It's sort of like, well, supposedly we're doing, you want to help people. You don't want them to die. And more people are dying since we're doing it. And the most obvious answer for that is, well, if you're sort of getting a painkiller through a prescription, you know you're not going to die unless you want to, unless you try to die. If you go out in the street and you start like buying whatever you can find, a certain number of people are going to die. Hmm. And so we have these uh, counteracting trends where there's a line of prescriptions going down and drug deaths are going up. They're up to 110,000 now. And they're doubling down. they're They're
0: doubling down. Yeah, they're not letting gonna, I'm gonna up. Jump, I'm going to jump in, and I don't want to talk over people. We, no, have a limit, ahead, ahead. we have a limited amount of time. Zach, would you mind talking about you have a history of addiction and what led you to that place? Because I really don't know how somebody, and I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it.
2: I'm comfortable. It's just that I think that if you've had an issue with drugs, mm-hmm. it's um, and, and then you've resolved it, it's almost like you're supposed to have... That amazing story. And I've tried to write that story a lot. Nothing comes to mind in particular, you know, there's there's nothing incredible that's happened. There's not this profound moment in my life that I then turned to a, a drug. I just, I had a rocky childhood. I had, I was diagnosed with different sorts of disorders, which, you know, funny for someone with disorders, I'm quite productive <laughs> at this point in my life. So I, I, I don't, I don't really cop to or, or accept labels like that. But, but as I grew up, I sort of did. I put on a face around it and, had social difficulty, difficulty making intimate connections with people, and I used drugs. And that seemed to be like a source of that satisfaction. You know, eventually it was, I used opiates. That was just a drug of choice, a way I like to zone out. And for the most part, I could keep up a balance with doing that and then having adult responsibilities. So I never really got to the point where my life was so diminished and I only clutched that, that drug as a single source of gratification. But in some ways I did, like, you know, I was using heroin, Instead of going out with friends, I was using heroin instead of adhering to some, you know, I'd mis- responsibilities, misappointments and things like that. And I liked it. Uh, you know, I, I, there was like a cognitive dissonance involved in that. And I was pretty young. I was in my early 20s. And eventually I, I overdosed. And by, by overdose, that, that's like not even a thing. I mean, it's you don't overdose on pure heroin. You really yeah. don't. But yeah. I, I was the the drugs I have are adulterated with something. And I, I think it was. I don't trust all the, uh, police reports, but apparently that stamp that I had and that I was using was had a bunch of different stuff in it that wasn't heroin. I wish I could say because it would be a nice, neat story that after after that I, I just that was like a, um, a epiphany kind of a moment for me, and but it wasn't. I mean, it was just one more reason to find betterment in my life. But it, that was well, it wasn't like a turnaround right away. I didn't hit a rock bottom or I didn't do any of the you know adages that people might want. I got better because I just sort of, I doubled down on my purpose in, in living life. I just yeah. sort of made a decision. And
3: sure. It, it was right around like, the it time. It like
2: you
1: outgrew your addiction. But that's the thing. is I that did. That's the thing. Most people do stop on their own. People Yay. who have developed yes. an addiction at some point. And so <clears> if it is a broken brain disease, how is it possible that people stop on. I used to smoke cigarettes. I didn't have, my brain wasn't broken. I stopped on my own. Like, why is it that they don't understand that? And you have people like Nora Volkow, like all of these main faces of addiction, Kelly Clark, Nora Volkow, even Ryan Hampton, all of these Lemke and Balent, whatever who who they never make that point. Like I like your story better because it's what's real. That's that's what happens.
2: That's what, what I realized I along it. the way is that I you know I thought that that was a sort of a profound story. I'm an anomaly. This will be interesting to share. This is a good data point for science. You know, and it's not an anomaly. The the majority of people who get into problems and involvements with drugs or whatever their uh, you know involvement of choice is that has caused net destruction in their lives. Get better because people tend to grow up and find the things that are important to them and important to other people. Cigarettes, you talked about that was a. It's a good place to start because if there's one drug that seems to be tougher to quit than any other, it's it's cigarettes, tobacco products, and people quit all the time. You know, half of people, maybe a little more, quit cigarettes on their own, and you really don't yeah. have, by and large, you don't have support groups, medications that people offer like uh, substitutes don't really work. I think maybe the best cessation tool has been vaping funny enough and people stop on their own. So you got to ask, so why do people quit this really difficult addiction to quit all the time? And you you get into drugs that are considered hard drugs like heroin and cocaine and methamphetamines and notice that actually more people kick that habit than they do their cigarette habit. And they tend to do it on their own too. So that was
3: another one of my big group efforts. When I'm in a big group, I say, and there are a lot of recovering people, They're in the business of being professional addicts. I say, by the way, what's the toughest drug to quit? And everybody everybody shouts out cigarettes. And I say, oh wow, wow. Has anybody in this room quit smoking? And you know, this is a bunch of people who are now like therapists and all. So like 70% of the room raise their hand. And I say, oh, you quit the toughest addiction there is to quit. Did you join a group to do it or use a medication? And nobody raises their hand. Yeah. And then I say, well, why did you quit? And then they give stupid, by which I mean well, you know, I, I developed pneumonia for the second time and I said what am I doing? Or the most common answer is I had a child or I got pregnant.
1: I mean, Yeah, like everyone but, smoked when I was a kid. My, I grew up in New Jersey. My parents are from the Bronx. Everyone, there's cigarette smoke around us everywhere we went. And they all quit smoking eventually. All of them.
3: Like what, another one of my I have these philosophical questions I ask. Everybody knows smoking is addictive now. Um, Since you can't smoke any longer in any place official, I say, you know, the average number of cigarettes a smoker smokes has gone down from 16 to 4 if you're a smoker. Are they still addicted? Interesting. I mean, the average person smoking a pack a day, you can say, oh, they're addicted. If you smoke four cigarettes a day and you're now a smoker, are you still addicted? It's that's, interesting. that's interesting. That's interesting
1: because it's the same. We had Carl Hart on our podcast and he said the same thing about other substances. Like most people who use substances do not develop an addiction to them. But that's another thing that no one wants to talk about.
3: Mm. Yeah, so Zach it, and I, have just, we just were engaged in another Zoom conference. And our conversation was around this topic. Zach and I have a business where we go out and people seek help. In dealing with, we don't tell people they have, not only don't we tell people they have have disease, we don't even tell them they have an addiction. They'll, They'll dial in and they'll say, well, I'm concerned about my drinking. And then at some point they might say, well, am I an alcoholic? And we'll say, well, let's not talk about that exactly right now. Let's say, why are you worried about your drinking? You know, well, my partner says I drink too much or, you know, I have this medical problem. And I say, okay, well, why... What do you get from drinking? And they say, well, I feel more relaxed and I enjoy it. And then we start balancing that out like any normal human decision-making. We never give them a label. We certainly never tell them you're a lifelong anything. And then we say, well, you tell me what are the balance or the mix of your motivations in terms of whether you drink and how much you drink. Let's kind of bring it into your realm of official control. So we have a business. It's called the Life Process Program. And part of our business is we have to get a high rating from Google. And part of what we have to do is we have to write blog posts. And those blog posts have to sort of have the word recovery in it. And Zach and I never, ever say the word recovery to each other. Zach just gave a whole explanation for why he doesn't want to be in recovery. He doesn't want to get involved in that. Because recovery says, oh, I have a disease I have to get better from. And the conversation all of us have been having is, you have a life, you want to live a life. You want to be healthy, you might want to get a partner, you might want to have children, you might want to have a job, you might want to have a purpose in life. Those are all things that happen with Zach. He's got married, he's got a daughter. Yeah, Oh, nice. He's kind of got a profession, he likes it, he's good at it. And that, that used to be considered life. That's normal. And if you have a child, you'd say, well, I'd like them to have an intimate partner, i like them to be healthy, and you know, I'd like them to have a purpose in life, I'd like them to make a living. And now we sort of say, oh, you have a disease, and sometimes they decide they have a disease at the age of 14, and then the rest of their yeah. life, they're fighting this disease and That's they're right. in recovery, yeah. as opposed to, well, let's just talk about like getting life or living life. Right. So we could title the conversation that we're having Getting a life instead of recovering from a disease.
2: I, I like a, that. I have yeah. a question for both of you. As you said, yeah. you had um, illnesses that were not, uh, in some ways, not taken seriously, or you weren't taken seriously as people who were had the ability as adults to be yeah. able to use a drug for pain relief. Yeah. What do when what is the basis for you personally or each yeah. of you personally for your doctors saying to you you are not using you, you know you are using this drug in excess or you are not able to take the drug? They they have sort of a like yeah. a, a tracking of pro social activities or questions of yeah. questionnaire about your life
1: yeah so my, Yeah. So for me, I was, um, I was diagnosed in the 90s. And I remember my doctor saying to me, be grateful you weren't diagnosed 10 years ago because you would have never gotten any opioids. And I was back mm. then, Crohn's didn't have all these amazing biologics. So it was in the hospital for months and months and months at a time. And a lot of times it was on IV Demerol back then. And I never developed an addiction. And I would come out and then off and on whenever I needed it, I would take it. And I never had an issue until this 2017. I went into the hospital. They did CT scans. I had two kidney stones in, which is not uncommon with Crohn's, and they admitted me for pain control. And the doctor saw in my prescription drug database that I had gotten van in the past. So that triggered him to question me. And he said, what is it for? And I said, oh, it's for PTSD. And he was like, what for? And I was like, well, I don't don't understand why it matters. And he said, what is it for? And I said, childhood abuse. And he said, was it childhood sexual abuse? I said, yes. And he said, because of that, you're too high risk of addiction. I will not be part of developing you into an addict. He punched me on the shoulder and walked out of the room. And the next 24 hours, I was treated like trash. And they kept telling me it was to protect me. Now, I was in my 40s. I've been taking opioids off and on for decades. I never developed an issue. Now, all of a sudden, that history didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was I was high risk based on something he determined based on the opioid risk tool, I suspect. And that's what led him to believe that. And so uh, that, that was the entire reason. There was no other reason. There was nothing in my chart. And I said to him, do a drug test. I have in there what I'm supposed to. He's like, I already did. And, and I'm like, so what the hell? And he's like, no, you, you're too high risk of addiction because of your childhood abuse.
2: I, I I may or may not have a doctor. It's it's almost like you need to lie to your doctors, but you you would have to understand no, each, each each person's logic to know which thing to lie about. And I, I may or yeah. may not have a doctor now who who said just that to me. You know really? I I had I had on my chart the history of opioid use uh, problematic or something like that, and I said, hey, I want that off my chart. And she said, oh, oh we'll take it off your chart, and then said, or, oh, sorry, she may or may not be a she and said, I, I have a, a, an incredible doctor. And she okay. said, it's it's funny with things like this, right, because you know that you and I have a relationship and I wouldn't abuse it. And so we would just do something common sense. If you went to the hospital, who knows what they might say about, you know, had a problem with opioids. So it's almost, and that, that was her quote. It's like, it's almost like you've got to lie or leave things off your charts because you can't trust the things that are going on to your medical record are actually going to be used to help you. It's almost like litigation. Mm -hmm. Like they're going to be used against you.
1: It is. And then with the algorithms, like you have things like Narc's hair and other risk score algorithms that pull from these charts. So it will read if you have a PTSD diagnosis, depression diagnosis, anxiety. If there's a way in there that they can read with these machine learning natural language that you were sexually abused as a child, that will go in there. Absolutely any OUD or Mm -hmm. even Suboxone given for pain is read as OUD, you're given a higher risk score. And then the Department of Justice has access to all these risk scores. And then they flag a doctor based on "Well, I prescribed to someone who was sexually abused that triggered this, and then they get investigated. And so it's this huge, vicious cycle. And I we tell people to lie, if you were raped as a child, if you were abused, if you had, even if your family members had issues with addiction, if you are there for something else, do not answer yes, do not do not tell them the truth
3: ever. So the thing that, the strange thing about all of this is we're probably all progressives and Zach and I interact with a lot of people who are part of the drug policy reform movement. And Mm -hmm. there are people who say, well, we don't want to arrest people who take drugs. That's stupid. Yeah. So we're all on board with that. And then a bunch of them will say, oh, they have a disease. That's right. And And the disease is something you you can never get rid of. That's right. And so Suppose you decided to take methadone or suboxone. Yeah. Because you're, Well, let's let's transition here. You know what I mean? Uh, I can do this for a couple of months. And then you're like you or Zach and you say, okay, time out. I'm done with that. I don't feel like taking suboxone or methadone. They won't let you
1: stop. That's what we were just telling Zach. We yes, have people contact us all the time. They were like, they were like, I'm mandated by drug court. They won't let me stop. Or I want to wean. My doctor will not let me come off. And the, the problem, I mean, this is going to sound like I think we need help because it's hitting pain patients now. I think it should never have been treated like this to begin with, but I didn't know about it until it hit pain patients. So this is what made me start fighting. But now, you know, you talk about the professional addict like Lemke takes that and puts it on pain patients. I have Crohn's. I will have Crohn's for the rest of my life. There is no cure. But now sh- I'm talked to as though I've done something wrong to have this illness. It is my fault. And and, and uh, I don't deserve to have pain treated pain all of a sudden doesn't exist. But they're pushing because I've had opioids off and on over the years. Right now, I'm not on them regularly, but when I need to, I am. My frontal lobe is broken. My brain is broken. And so I can't make an appropriate decision. So they're putting people like me onto Suboxone and they will not let them come off. And the issue is it's not really helping most people's pain. It's helped some, very few. So now you have someone, and Zach, they're taking people on 20 milligrams of Vicodin a day, 20 milligrams of putting them on 24 milligrams of Suboxone a day because they're afraid to keep them on 20 milligrams of Vicodin a day. So they're taking people who had almost zero physical dependence on opioids and making them extremely dependent. And then they're never letting them come off and it's not even helping their pain. So now they're like, am I gonna go to the street to get hair? Like, what else am I gonna do? It, the whole thing is so broken.
3: So you <laughs> and Zach are opposite ends of the spectrum. Zach has decided he doesn't wanna tell anybody that he used to tell them to take opioids. Yeah, I don't blame and, him though. Why would he? But well, we're not gonna let you stop telling people yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you on the other hand say they make you take them. And with exact they won't let him stop saying that he is that. Yeah. So like one of the consulting jobs I have is a woman'll come to me and she said, Oh, I worked at a doctor's office and I was taking percocet And then, you know, I quit on my own and um I'm thinking I could maybe I should enter it into my medical record. And the first question I said to her was, "How's your marriage going?" So said, "Oh, it's funny you should say that. I'm possibly getting divorced." And I say, "Don't let it get on your record. It'll <laughs> kill you." Oh, it's oh wow. you will know, yeah. take the child away from you. You're not allowed to say, "I used to take the drugs. I'm fine now." You can't do that. Yeah. And so we've got we've we've introduced this dark wall into medicine, where you have to game the medical system. To do what you know to be not only the best for you, but what your life has already told you is true for you. Like, who
1: are they to decide for everybody? Like, who are they to say? What is okay and not okay? What if someone is taking opioids, like recreationally, like Call Hart has, and it helps them with addiction, anxiety, not addiction, with anxiety or, or depression or whatever it is. Why is that not okay? And it's only okay for physical pain, but now it's not because you have idiots like Lemke saying, and Kolodny, opioids cause pain, opioids don't help pain. So if you are, because if you start with that, opioids don't help pain ever which you say has, and now everyone's believed them, like they're morons. And then someone's coming to you and saying, I want opioids, they help pain. Then you're obviously lying, so you're drug seeking and, and
0: using it for some other purpose. But who are
1: they? to? Well, who put them in charge?
0: We have doctors who are telling patients, well, studies show opioids cause pain. And I, we're getting merchandise that says, telling somebody <laughs> opioids cause pain is a form of mental illness. This is an industry that's been created glamorizing Suboxone and forcing millions and millions of new, they want new consumers. It's the, like Bev said, it's an industry that's been created off the backs of pain patients. Opioid
1: elimination, off of people with, with addiction
0: too, though. And let me just say this so
1: so that you know. I'm all for people having access to to, to medication for opioid use disorder, methadone, suboxone, if that helps. Out, I'm all for that. I'm just not for forcing it and making them be on it for life. And then I do wonder, I don't know, Zach, maybe you could tell me, like, do you think most people who are on Suboxone intend tend to do well, I know there's a lot of diversion because they, you know, they sell it and then they don't really always use it. Would most of them just do better with regulated heroin or, or even oxycodone or something full agonist instead of Suboxone, do you think?
2: I'm not much on like just trying to establish which drug is best for which people, but I will just say, yeah, I think that a vast option for people to take the drugs they wish to take for whatever reasons they choose to take them, in a setting that's controlled, perhaps, or, and certainly with the drug that's controlled and known to be safe, that would eliminate many drug deaths. I mean, then you get the argument from people that say, well, okay, we've legalized alcohol. Look at the destruction it causes. But look at the destruction that it caused when it wasn't legal. So, yeah, yeah that's right. you can't make something 100% safe. People don't operate that way. But it certainly is it, it certainly, <laughs> not helping to to say, okay, you have a choice between one of two drugs that are maybe sort of like the ones you wanted to take. And by yeah. the way, while you're taking them, you can't just take them. Uh, we're gonna watch you. We're gonna we're gonna watch you pee. But also, we're gonna we're gonna monitor you. And you have to do this, and so you have to sign on the dotted line, figuratively yeah. and literally, saying that you are yeah. helpless and sick. Uh, that, yeah. that can't be that can't be a healthy approach for people living there's their a best life.
3: phenomena that happen in the real world all the time that back up exactly what Zach's saying. On the one hand, some people are put on suboxone. It's there's a very famous case in Massachusetts where a woman was on suboxone and she went back to taking a street out of a, a, a fentanyl. So the answer to the question is she preferred fentanyl to suboxone. Yeah. So shoot her in the head. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, and obviously one was prescribed to her, and the other she had to get on the street. The opposite phenomenon is this question, which is sort of what you were asking, Beth. When you go to drug policy, Zach and I just did a podcast that might get us a little trouble about a very famous woman that we both know named Maya Salivitz, oh, and she's one hundred percent for M O U D medications for opioid due disorder. And so their answer to the question, while we've been cutting back opioids, more and more people have been dying. Their answer to that question is not enough people are on methadone right. and Suboxone. Right. However, methadone and Suboxone, not everybody in the world has access to them, but 60% of people with opioid issues are exposed to them. Only 25% of them continue taking suboxone for as long as a year. So now mm-hmm. you have to, you're, the, drug, the progressive drug policy reformers are sort of saying, oh, they're doing the wrong thing because they don't want to take the medication that I think that they should take. that That's the progressive drug policy reform. Yeah. And we could ask them, why don't you want to take it? They might say, I don't need it at all, A. Or they might say, you know, I, prefer heroin you know what i mean those are the two sort of opposite poles and what we're all asking i mean maybe we're all libertarian secretly or not i'm more
1: libertarian for sure than progressive who, i tend to who gets yeah.
3: to decide what drug is best for you and in your life that's right in terms of your pain in terms of living your life how, do, how right. does some guy you run into with doctor's office once every six months yeah, know the answer to that better than you do.
1: That's right. That's exactly right. But I think the people in charge right now, those who are having the platform—Gary Mendel, Nora Volkow, uh, like Shatterproof—all of these people. Unfortunately, this opioid prescription opioid elim- elimination industry they created is funded by pharma while they're claiming that we're all funded by pharma. And I don't know if you saw Shatterproof did like a, a media thing a few months ago. It was this huge media changed the narrative. And they asked, of course, the people on there were all from Endivier, right? And and so they asked them, What's the number one thing we can do to remove stigma? And he said the number one thing media can do is to make sure everybody understands that addiction is a broken brain, chronic illness. That's their answer because then they all need suboxone for life. And yeah, I don't know. I I, I don't think, I, I well, always yeah, I, want-
3: was, I wanted to make this point when you were talking. They're making a million movies like Dope Sick about how the drug companies are forcing people to take painkillers. That's right. Now there's a multi-billion dollar industry of people making you take medications that make you not take street opioids that's right big pharma you're making exactly the right point that big pharma controlling our lives has switched as much to moud and where they're making billions and where you're not allowed to be on your own as it supposedly was to painkillers so they're making all these big giant best-selling movies um drug sick and and painkiller in 20 or 30 years are they going to start making movies about oh they forced me to take suboxone when i didn't want to or they- i don't know i
0: mean
1: maybe if they can if our country can figure out a way to make 60 billion dollars by suing indivier i mean they already made one like two billion but if they can make more then yeah because i think a lot of this narrative was funded for this 60 billion in multi-district litigation i mean all of these main main expert like all of these main names you see lemke valentine kolodny uh sullivan franklin they every single one has made $500 to $1,000 an hour as expert witness in opioid litigation. Millions upon millions upon millions. And they've, if you look at the the, um, com- the, the government um, legislators who opened investigations like Wyden and McGaskill into these pharmaceutical companies' relationships with pain organizations, their main donor, their main campaign donations were the law firms that turned around and took those investigations to sue pharmaceutical companies. So it and is all...
3: Pro- I want to ask you a question. Huh? Me me and Zach, we sometimes discuss how we became twisted people. I, you know, I mean, Zach is a, has a wife, at a job. Zach works in a public school, system, for God's sake. But somehow he never kind of believed all the answers that they told them. You know, somewhere along the line, he just wasn't buying what they gave them. What are your two excuses? How did you two uh, get, get off the bait <laughs> and arrow? Go ahead, Claudia. I'll I'm let you take out. that one. you're not members of the mafia. I'm going to go with that. Uh, <laughs> I don't order a drug cartel. How did you guys get that thing? How did you guys learn to think, hey, let me think this through and come up with a logical answer and let's go with that?
0: I grew up. <laughs> I mean, I I was partying and then I stopped. I grew up. I became an adult, and I don't were
3: believe an, were you always an offbeat or an independent person? Oh or... God, yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I've always been a leader. I've never
3: been a follower.
0: and uh, I raised my kids to be the same way. I I come from advocates. How
3: do you? Ra- how do you ra- we Zag and I wrote a book, by the way, called "Outgrowing Addiction," and we have a a lot about child development. Can you give us one or two? If people were going to tune in this program and they'd say, oh, I want to make sure my kids don't become addicted. And for 99% of people, Zach and I or Zach interviewed somebody we really admire, wrote the book Free Range Kids. And she's deathly afraid that our kid's going to become addicted to drugs. Zach and my answer to that is, well, you let your child learn to think independently and live in the world. And that's how they... I was just sitting outside of a cafe, Cafe Madeline here in Brooklyn. And a guy had a, some people just hold on to their kids. They're just holding their hands like they're afraid they're going to be kidnapped. And I saw a little kid go well, zip by on a scooter. And then his father comes by the cafe Madeline. And he goes, Jack, Jack, we're going here. In other words, he had to wave down his kid to get him back up the block coming to the store. How do you, Claudia, do you have any, how do you go about raising kids who are going to be independent thinkers, which means, A, they're not going to believe all this bullshit about all these drugs, A, and B, they're going to be independent enough that they're not going to become dependent on, and not only they can become dependent on drugs, you don't want them to become dependent on another person, there's a million scare stories yeah. like that, there's a million ways you can do it, you don't want them to join a religious cult. What are your secrets for that?
0: Uh, I think trauma. Uh, really is the root cause of a lot of the woes in life. I think once you're once you're subjected to trauma, it's anything can
3: happen. Did you get over trauma?
0: Uh, I went through a horrible custody battle and I'm for, that forever changed who I am as a person. And you know, that could have gone a well, few you, different you were the, ways. you
3: were the you were the custody person. No, I, that- I
0: was I was the mom of the child. And I was fighting my custody battle for my hospital bed. And that could have made, you know, that could have broken me. And it did, you know, it broke me. And then I just found strength. But I'm fortunate because a lot of these people that reach out to us that have these heavy duty addictions, they were all subjected to really bad shit. I mean, a lot of trauma and I I don't think that drugs cause addiction. I think trauma really is the driving force behind so many. Zach, exactly. What do we
3: think about trauma? Yeah, I don't
0: know how I feel we... about
2: that. I'm not going to speak for you, although I might be able to at this point. But I, I, I'll say <laughs> what I think about it. I mean, tra- I mean the the term trauma. If you really get down to it, if you if you hold somebody's feet to the fire and ask like what counts as traumatic, you know. Uh, sometimes people have, like I was just working with a, a psychologist here in, in my state, sometimes people have like a, a line that this is traumatic and this isn't, but obviously that's silly. And so uh, the the term trauma, if it could be interchanged with something like like real life difficulty, lasting life difficulty, some event or events that you've had to overcome in your life or maybe still haven't overcome, well, then based on our book and what we believe and what we do at our program, we would say... Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Someone who has, who's more disparaged in life for one reason or another, or at least feels more disparaged, is probably more likely to engage in something that helps them, that they think helps them escape from life or provides them some sort of relief. But, well, we stop as far as saying that because of some traumatic thing that has happened in a person's past, they can't get over it. Like they're destined to continue doing this yeah. thing.
0: Yeah, that so, makes uh, sense. That absolutely makes, and that makes of, sense.
2: In a lot of ways, like I'm I'm making a big assumption about your life and I don't know you, Claudia, but like <laughs> I, it's, it sounds like you use that and have been able to actually use that experience to navigate and, you know, have a set of boundaries or ideas for yourself. You know about know how Zach doesn't help.
3: Really used to be an addicted person. I'm sort of sitting around sometimes and I feel I have to say, well, I raise my hand, I say, I only had one sibling and he committed suicide. My wife, I had three kids, I'm divorced now, had two brothers and one of them committed suicide. And I say, my wife and I never once in our lives said to our kids, you know, suicide runs in our family. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to constantly be worried yeah. that you're going to commit suicide. We said, I mean, how, what did we do? Well, we tried to raise them to have opportunities. They all have partnerships. They all, they all have jobs. It gets back through. We don't, we're no more for recovery from trauma than we are for recovery from addiction. Yeah. And I actually have a rap I do, and and I believe it. it. They sound crazy. I say people who've had, I don't, do you know any people who've had like perfectly normal lives and they were really good? Yeah. yeah. Are they, I think, those poor, boring slobs, <laughs> they have no awareness. Yeah. When they're watching television and somebody's addicted yeah. Yeah. or they do something bad, they say, What the hell's the matter with those people? Yeah. But people who've had something going on in their background, they have a little bit of an awareness that life isn't always a bowl of cherries. Yeah. It both allows them <laughs> to deal with incoming flat. And it also makes them understand Sorry. what's going on out there better.
1: Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I, I I think trauma plays a part. I mean, I think a lot of things play a part. They want to put it on something. It was the... the, the oxycodone it was this it was this but like that's the whole thing of why I was denied opioids because I had trauma in my background so I kind of react when people say that because you take something like ACEs adverse childhood events and you take something that's real and you weaponize it instead of Mm. taking it and understanding it and maybe let's help people who have no money let's help families feed their children so they're not raised in such a horrible situation putting them at risk but I'm going to tell you like I was raised it was a really rough home they went through the criminal court system when I was in high school in the 90s and I was traumatized but because of that like i was determined to understand the world and figure out how to make the world a better place nothing traumatized me as much as that hospital experience when they used my childhood trauma against me so we are taking people in a in a Idea to prevent addiction, and we're causing more trauma that could possibly lead to what they're saying could be leading were to addiction. Was
3: it acceptable to what they were telling you at that time in your life? Was it almost like somebody was selling you a bill of goods, and for a time you bought it, or did you never no, buy it? No, I never
1: bought it. I was in my forties. You know, I worked my ass off. I worked really hard well, you to. Were an adult. I was an adult, so I worked really. I went through a lot of really rough years. I, you know, I, I worked really hard to. um, I did a ptsd and I, I did have to deal with it and i worked hard at it but by that time in my life i was so determined to be like i called claudia the first time i ever spoke to her sobbing from the hospital bed i was like these people just told me because what i went through as a kid i could never have my pain treated again and that just set me on a path to figure out why like this makes like i have did a you need have a, to understand
3: you as a child or were you more under uh, some duress did i ever what were you did you have a privileged childhood or were no. you under more no I mean my regret?
1: I came from a Jewish family I was middle class my parents are from the Bronx so in in that sense I had an, a very normal typical Jewish upbringing in 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 New York New Jersey area um, but there was abuse in my home um, so that in that way I I was under duress but we always had enough money I played soccer you know I I had the I had everything typical other than uh, you know being abused which was rough and then it was brought to you know, criminal court in when I was in high school. But I also was given, I also did have support by other people in my life
3: Wait, to help I'll me through you. it. You ended up in criminal court?
1: Yeah, my abuser, Um, yeah, it, it went to criminal like court. You were
3: a victim.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's why I was denied opioids, because I was a victim of abuse. And then he, you know, he pled guilty and blah, 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 and whatever. But I didn't know why they were asking me that question, the opioid risk tool. I didn't know what that was. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Like, And, and that's know...
0: asked of every patient. And that's
1: the thing. So when that happened, I asked questions. I have stories from women, who, women, not men, because the opioid risk tool only was about women who were sexually abused. If you were a boy, um, you didn't have any points against you based on the old opioid risk tool. They've changed it now. But we have stories from women. Women, domestic violence, rape, sexual abuse. So are you
3: saying
2: they almost? Denied against
3: you? They almost? did. Yeah, I think
2: that's the crux of the whole thing. Anything gets can be pathologized. Can
0: it, be and, it's and if that's you're exact. in recovery, if you're in recovery, and you get rushed into the emergency room after, for instance, the other night, eight o'clock at night, I received a text from a woman. She was in a horrible car accident. Uh, she broke her net. I sent it to Bev as soon as I got it and she's been on she said one suboxone strip She's been in recovery for eight years and the emergency room doctor said I can't give you any more than you know, just a few pills because yeah, of your history it. of Addiction so he's like you'll have to call your PCP PCP can't help her, and now, People. now what's going to happen? Is she? I don't know if she's going to jeopardize her recovery.
3: But
1: untreated pain is a higher risk; it gives a higher risk of relapse than being exposed to an opioid. But and I stantan- tell you that
3: you took it one level deeper. Yeah, they bring you in. Yeah, how do you make a person healthy and happy? Do you really review every bad thing that ever happened right. in life? Is that is that what you're going to do with a child? And, and that's saying, what oh, they that's teach doctors. But that's leg. what
1: they like that's what they teach doctors is you now, Stanton, if you were younger, say you were like just say you were in your 30s and you present to the hospital right now with an issue. Mm-hmm. And if that doctor knew that you had family members who had committed suicide, they would not give you opioids because they would think you're too high risk of addiction. That's what's happening. And if the doctor that, if that wait happens,
3: Zach just wrote a blog post, we make people journal. And when people journal, we they can do a life story about everything bad that happened to them. And people the people that we deal with, they can do that. About being arrested and drugs and all like that. And then we say, All right, let's just take a break from that. Why don't you write about like all the best things that happened and all the great successes you've had in your life? You know what I mean? Like when you wanna die yeah. Yeah. Why don't you sort of emphasize like everything positive in your life? And one human being, whether they're trained as a psychologist or not, doesn't believe that people do better going forward when they look in their life in terms yeah. of the positives in it. Yeah. Why would you Why would you ever emphasize only the negative?
1: That's really, but can I ask you guys then, (laughs) what do you think is at the root of addiction? Um, If it's not trauma, if it's not exposure to to, um, a substance, is it just a conglomeration of things, including some biological, because they use that biological thing more than anything also. Trauma, if you've been exposed to trauma, you have a family member with addiction, forget it. You'll never get your pain treated in this country. I think that
3: people are trained to be dependent and the reason I asked you to, where did you develop your independence streaks for? What made, the, th- the two things, or three things that make you most confident about a child are uh, attachment. They're able to attach to other human beings and they're able to get involved in something. Do they mm-hmm. want to do something? And it doesn't, sort of, as long as it's not illegal, if they like sports, if they like music, if they like writing, um, if they like talking to people, I'll give a secret about uh, Zach's got a five-year-old daughter. When they were watching, yeah. they were watching the Grinch who stole Christmas. Zach's daughter got really exasperated, and he said, "If I knew the Grinch, I would make him his, my friend, and he wouldn't be so mean." Aww. So she's already got her uh, resume Aww. For the helping professions. That's already yeah. her shtick, and that's what she's thinking about. The second, so there's attachment, and. Attachment to the world and the people. Purpose. Finding something you do that gives you satisfaction, that makes you feel good about yourself. And third is independence. Allowing your child as much free reign. I mean, you know, you're not going to let them cross the street when they're four. Yeah. But you're going to, like, think, how much can I allow them to do? Just this morning, the kid zipped by a four-year-old on his scooter, and his father's trailing like 10 yards behind. I almost spoke to him, but I didn't because he was worried about his kid. I said, man, you're not an over-worrier, are you? There are people <laughs> who won't let their kid take yeah. the scooter you know, anywhere. Yeah. You're just saying, hey, Jack, Jack, we're going here. Come on. Yeah.
2: So those are the culmination of balancing forces that tend to help people escape whatever their preoccupation is with the drug or <clears throat> involvement. You, you know, You might call that addiction, depending on how destructive it is in your life. How much impairment and distress it causes to use a dsm term then i guess the opposite of that wherever the opposite of those pro-social pro-life kind of forces are in your life that could easily make somebody become preoccupied by you know involvement that's overall not great for them but people tend to slip in and out of it people look for a magical cause and a magical cure
1: and a magical prevention because of that they try to prevent
2: Right, right. And so, and so mean, there what, just isn't. I to
3: summarize what we're all saying here is, you know, we think we're so modern and smart with all of trauma theory yeah. and opioid theory and disease theory. Where people really were, where our parents and our grandparents really worse off than us. Where 110,000 people dying of drugs back in the old days. And we get down to sort of like, what kind of common sense question would your grandmother ask about something? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Would they do you say, Well, let the boy do something on his own or uh, does he have something positive in so, his life? But why because is there
1: like why is there so much Like pushback against people like you. Like, I saw Stanton, I saw this really old video you had up where you were debating someone with it. I felt like it was like today's show when I was a little girl or something. I don't know, it looked like it was in the 80s. And you were debating someone and they were really nasty to you, like really pushing back. Why is there such pushback against anything
3: other than the disease theory? Well, you're getting to my favorite topic now. We don't have time for it. I wrote a memoir called a scientific life on the edge. My only quest to change how we see addiction. I used to be really, really, really unpopular because I would get on and say addiction's not a disease, and people would say, and I'd say, you know, a lot of people take narcotics in the hospital and they end up okay. Why are we blackballing them? And people hated me for that, and they thought I was an idiot because I was against the disease theory. And now I'm sort of almost as unpopular yeah because I'm again, I say, well, who need you know if you want to take methadone or suboxone as some kind of a transition, fine, but that's no magical cure either and that's so right. i i'm seventy seven now and believe it or not, I'm as unpopular as I always was. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I don't know. There's such a pushback. And and then there's this also huge division right now. I saw your video about Drug Policy Alliance. And let me tell you, that was encouraging to me because we often get attacked. I'm all for harm reduction, whatever you want to call it. But we do get attacked because we're told that we're being accepted. We only stand up for us, which is not true. I just, again, didn't know about what people were. I didn't understand anything about addiction. I grew up in the Just Say No to Drugs, Nancy Reagan era. I didn't know much about it. But a a lot of these organizations are now taking, uh, harm reduction organizations are taking a lot of settlement funds. So they're going to use it to to make sure that there's stricter prescribing laws so i don't understand that it's like cognitive dissonance like on one hand
3: they're teaching kids in elementary school about the disease theory of addiction about the need for medications for mental health to get over addictions it's um the united states they did something called the global burden of disease the united States, out of 196 countries the united states was at the very bottom They, they measured both death and disability in terms of mental health, and in terms of drugs, Americans lose five times the average amount of years due to death, and disability to drugs, as the average person in Europe. Five times? How's that possible? Wow. People in Europe are wow. young, just like us. And the reason is we're. You asked this question early on in this discussion. They're doubling. You use the word doubling now. More. Maybe I think Claudia said that. More and more people are dying, and they're sort of saying, well, why don't we do more of yeah. what we've been doing up until now? Yeah. And in fact, plain old common sense, good relationships, community it's something called community-based mental health, where you're a part of your community, where you deal with other people. Bev, are you uh, well-connected to your community?
1: Yeah, I am. You look that way. You yeah, like
3: I a, Bev, <laughs> well... I mean, mm. I, we're, we're
1: like activists. We're, we're advocates. So all day long, I just, my community of, of like pain patients and, and people who are hurting and yeah, that's what we do would all day. You,
3: would you say that makes you feel health, happier about yourself? It makes you better mentally healthy? Yeah. Cause it, it makes... gives
1: me a purpose. I'm not sitting at home focusing on the fact that I've Crohn's disease and that, mm-hmm. you know, whatever else I, is yeah, stressful. Yeah.
0: That's what I'm getting from all of this. You know, A lot of these people that reach out to us with addiction and now I'm going to be referring them to you they didn't have (laughs) the same upbringing that I that I had they didn't have a purpose they didn't have joy they didn't have what I had in the home support Uh, anything they 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 didn't have yeah there was no there was no support there was no schedule and You know, raising my kids as a single mom, my kids thrived on the same things that I thrived on as a kid. And hopefully that, you know, they'll turn out, you know, they'll be happy, well-adjusted people. I'm I'm
3: telling all the stories about, I'm 77, so I'll be on a panel with a bunch of people who are recovering addicts or alcoholics. Mm Mm-hmm. And then I always ask them the same question. I say, how are your kids doing? And they say, oh, my kids are fine. You know, they're moderate drinkers. You know what I mean? They're not going out to you Norway." And I said, I know you're up here talking about how you overcame your trauma and your disease. But how did you make your kids so mentally healthy that they didn't go through all that? Yeah. Isn't that the most, the best thing you can contribute? And they, they yeah. can say what you said, Claudia. They gave them a purpose in life. They, if the kid wanted to learn a musical instrument, and of course, by the time they had kids, these people were no longer on the streets scoring drugs. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so switching the very the same people who were talking about the recovery to switching to what they learned from that and what positive message they're giving to their children—that's the way the mental health lies.
1: Can I ask you to clarify, you said you were talking about Maya that you guys, and you said earlier, Zach, that you have a little bit different opinion about medication for opioid use. What is the difference of opinion that you guys have with, like, Maya or or others with that
3: belief? Zach will do this better than me. (laughs) Can you tell Zach's a friendly guy and people don't dislike him?
2: Yeah. Um, (laughs) the the crux of it is she, Maya is a thought leader. I mean, if if you haven't noticed, I'm sure you have. Um, yeah, we love Maya. She's, yeah. she's a thought leader in so many respects. And as Stanton kind of put it the other day when we were talking about it, it's like the epitome of the harm reduction movement. So, you know, you think harm reduction, you kind of think about Maya Solovitz at the forefront. Yeah. And in so many ways, you have to be grateful for her. You have, to, you have to respect that she's overcome hurdles in her life. She's become just a prolific writer. Okay, and now she's talking about common sense things like, well, somebody wants... If somebody's using needles and you want to give them a clean needle, like what the hell? You know, they want to make safer choices with their life, help them make safer choices with their life. You know, the life that they're living, not the life you think is important for them to live. So we're on board. And now we talk about uh, substitution or replacement, what she would call medications for opioid use disorder or addictions. And I think her take, I don't ever want a straw man, but it, I, sure. think I could reasonably make an assessment that her take is people should. Just these should be um, available to people all over, you know, the more the merrier, because if you look at the populations where they're prescribed, the death rate is cut about in half or even more. So Hmm. how could you not want a death rate cut in half or even more? Stanton and I are saying, yes, we don't want death rates to go up. But if you look at our current drug death rate, it is going up. So the idea that this is the solve all despite the being more prescribed all the time, there has to be something at least missing from that theory because yeah. look what's happening. And Maya will say, well, yeah, fentanyl, that's the reason. So now we need even more medications for addiction because even harsher drugs are coming up. Stanton and I would say it's not abstract to say, to, to take a step back and say I think more fundamentally we need to get our wrap our heads around what's going on. A lot yeah. of people who are taking methadone and suboxone uh, like you said, sort of they take them and they divert them or they take them, and they continue using drugs or they take them and don't want to be taking them or they just decide not to take them. You know, And so yeah. also the people are delivering a message while people are taking these drugs that you're sick. These are medicines to help you get better. And as you pointed out aptly, that it's very difficult to to ask to get yourself off of these drugs. Are you sure you want to stop taking these drugs? No, so the, the whole the whole system, the whole ideology that's built in with these drugs we're not for or against drugs they're drugs you know and people want to take them we're not for or against people having the yearning to put something in their body but you can't get these drugs without there being something associated with it an assumption being associated with it or a systematic belief system around another human being being imposed on them being attached to it so yeah. that, that, that's our difference
3: thank you they are yeah. the salesmen, the disease team. Zach did that pretty well, didn't he? Uh, you no, know, that was
1: great. I'm, a, I'm, Thank you for that. Because I was, you know, Maya was one of the first people <laughs> who actually taught me any of this. Like, I asked her a million questions. And then, you know, with Carl Hart, too, I've watched him, too. And I, you know, I pick and choose. Like, I don't always agree everything with everyone says. And it has to be logical and make sense. But what you said about, it's about like, they count success in this country right now. CMS counts success. If you ever look at how we're doing in the opioid crisis, they count success on... The percentage suboxone and methadone prescribing has gone up is success and the amount other opioid prescribing has come down those two things have to happen for them to say success but those two things have happened in addition to huge amounts of naloxone so if if Naloxone wasn't even there, wasn't even a variable. The death rate would be so much even more. So it's even worse than it would have been. And, and Suboxone and has continued to go up and other opioids have continued to go down. So how can that be our answer? That, that's
2: the toughest part is that in order to say, yay Naloxone, yay medication, oh, but the death rate's higher than it's ever been. You have to create a counterfactual. It would have been higher. And right. so you have to live in some reality that's not reality in order to make, to justify that this is the right thing to do. It's probably, it probably has saved some people's lives in, in, sure. in some circumstances. Like it not being available, like what monster who has made God for some reason would want to say, no one has access to these things. Right. But you're, as you're saying, you can't hold two things as a success while the ultimate goal of people not dying is continuing to happen. Uh, it's almost yeah. like that. Those are those strange three pictures to put, uh, in the same line, a little, you know?
3: I'm a little more provocative than that. Maya, <laughs> self, Maya thinks about herself that she needs medications to deal with some underlying anxiety and ADHD. Maya Salavitz's life story is she got down to 89 pounds, shooting up heroin and cocaine while she was in Columbia. She went to rehab. She got out, and in 1988, she hasn't taken heroin or cocaine since. She went right back to Brooklyn College. She became a national author. Became a regular columnist at the time, and now she's a columnist for the New York Times. Yeah. So, if I wanted to make a really bad joke, I would say, "What the hell's the matter with those addicted people, Maya? They didn't become best-selling authors like you." <laughs> you know what I? <laughs> and then, and Zach will actually say to her, "Maya, do you really think if you went to the hospital and they gave you an opioid, you know, Maya's married, she's famous. I don't know." You really think you'd go back on the street and start shooting up heroin and cocaine right now if you took some, uh, you know, fentanyl in the hospital? Do you really believe that? She doesn't even answer that. Really, I,
1: I'm surprised because I thought that she wouldn't think that. Because she she's one of the few who fights for access to prescription opioids for pain patients. She she's does. one of she is one of the first who spoke up on our behalf because it is very very difficult to get any harm reduction activists to ever speak up on our behalf because it right away makes them not be able to receive grants if they're if they're running a nonprofit and they certainly no, no, some I mean, of the most some of the most sense
2: making I've ever seen on the topic has come from her. I've seen yeah. I mean I've seen her put out articles about pain prescriptions and it, she. Yeah. Yeah. just lays out the case really well and I think that she's been a yeah. boon for, for that whole community. Yeah, but, but you said stand- the
3: harm reduction people are kind of down on you is that I
1: uh... Oh my gosh, are you kidding uh... me? The Har- National Harm Reduction Coalition, Drug Policy Alliance, all of these people, these people like Ethan and 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 I forget her name. What's her name? She runs Harm Reduction Coalition. They, they're they're the Sackler. These people are Sackler haters taking money for opioid litigation. And so, yes, these people will never stick up for, for prescription for pain medication for, for pain patients ever. They won't. We go, we've gone to them and said, can you fight with us and we fight with you so we can all have access to whatever it is that we need? They won't because I don't know if it's because it's so lucrative to hate the Sacklers because ever, I want a T-shirt that says, but, but the Sacklers, because no matter what happens, no matter what it is, that's the answer. But the Sacklers, like this hyper focus on the Sacklers. And I don't know if it's because money. I don't know if it's because they're getting litigation funding. Zach,
3: uh, Zach, Where would Maya come down on that, that conflict that Bev is describing? So
1: she's on with us. I mean, she, she has sided with us. Ma- uh, Maya Carl Hart, tremendously, they're they're huge um, supporters of us. And we spoke to Mark Shearer, and he's a supporter of us. So Maya, she's the one. She was the one who wrote the Narcs Care article when that that I was in her story. That she's a. We went to media, and we're like, someone's got to write this about pain patients being denied opioids for being abused, and she wrote it. So she's a huge supporter. Totally. Uh, of, uh, of us but no some of the other they're not they won't and I don't know I don't know why it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to me because you, you're talking about access and safe consumption sites or whatever you call them and you're also pushing for more strict prescribing laws I don't understand that those two coming from the same people.
3: Yep. So, do you understand how Zach describes how we have a different emphasis than her? You- yeah, yeah.
1: No, he explained it perfectly. I'm glad you said that because I was trying to figure it out. I I don't mean to yeah. uh,
0: leave early, but why don't you ask about how we can get people over yeah. to their program? Because yeah, and then you know, once I I learn this, I because these people
3: need help. They they're no, we need, we have a lot. Are they talking about the Life Process Program, Zach? Yeah, because we have a
1: lot of people who find us on TikTok because they can't get help for their addiction. And even though, you you know, Mm. we fight for people with pain, but we also fight for compassionate care and
3: help for people with addiction. And uh, Zach and I have written a book together called um, Outgrowing Addiction. Uh, What's the subtitle, Zach?
2: With Common Sense Instead of Disease Therapy.
3: So you see where that's coming from, right, I guess, from this conversation. Zach... Uh, has a job and a family he also works as a coach in a lifeprocessprogram.com okay it's a common sense approach where people come with the various problems in the addiction realm which include sex drugs food shopping alcohol and we go through this process it's online and it can be mechanized to some degree or you can work with a coach where we don't label you We ask you to specify what problems have arisen around your exercise, your eating, uh, your sexual relationships. And then we go through it in this very common sense way. We ask you why are you, we we don't say you have a disease. We say, well, why do you do that? What about that sexual interaction or that compulsive shopping you find gratifying? And then we say, well, tell us a little bit more about your life. How How are you involved in life? What people are you involved with? Are you in a part of the community? And then we ask them some critical questions, which I think you all are recognizing. What's the most important thing to you in your life? We're talking about values now. Is it your being productive? Is it being healthy? Is it your family of origin? Is it your children? Is it your work? Is it God? Is it politics? And then we say, well, let's try and orient all of your answers around that kind of value decision. And how are we going to make it easier for you to be able to do that? What kind of people do you need to associate? How would your relationships look? Do you need to make use of certain skills? Do you not always have these skills? Can we help teach you these skills, like communication skills? Do you need to go back to school? Uh, Do you need to focus on a purpose or a profession? And then we talk about larger community and larger purposes. Everything we've been talking about here is normal human common sense principles that perhaps your grandma your yes. ordinary <laughs> human values skills purpose attachment and it's like a lot of people relate to it but it's like we're coming in from out of left field by talking about the most basic fundamental building blocks in life and Zach and we have a number of women coaches and Zach they have a gift as you can tell from just seeing Zach here yeah from how eliciting answers from people, without, you know, chiseling it in stone and throwing it at them.
1: Yeah. No, that's important. That so how how can we get people to your, like when people contact us and they say, which is what normally happens, um, I, I'm an addict, I'm on Suboxone, I want to come off, my doctor won't let me, what do I do? Is there a taper plan? What program can I find? Because they're not they're not allowed to do anything other than disease of addiction. How, how, do I like just refer them to your website? What's the best way to get them to you so they can have, I don't know if you, you probably don't take insurance or do you take insurance? Like, I don't know how.
2: No, yeah, by, des- so- by design, no insurance. I mean, yeah. it's like, it is like a closed box for them, for people. No, it's smart. So that yeah. it's not, yeah. So, and, yeah. And no, yeah. So the no
3: lifeprocessprogram.com, lifeprocessprogram.com. Okay. It's got a web page. It's got testimonial from people. Uh, you can see our various coaches. You can see the way that we work and the things that we emphasize. And you can check a box and get involved at any level. You can get involved in simply uh, filling out and answering questions and getting answers level or you could sign up for you could get zach or somebody else as an actual online code um okay
2: i'll also info at life process program.com is the email
1: okay so we can tell them to email that.
2: yeah, sure. And then I'll send okay. you, there's a number that people can text and I can send that to you if you want to put it in the show notes. Yeah,
1: please do. I mean, and you're sure, right? I mean, we have, you might get 10,000 people emailing you. Are you sure it's okay to give out this email address?
2: That's always a wonderful problem to have. Okay. You know?
1: <laughs> okay. Cause we, you know, the Really, like she said, every third con- phone call is about people. Sometimes they have addiction and pain. Sometimes it's just, you know, and, and they're stuck on on uh, this medication and they want to come off um, and they can't. And they're being told they're you know, broken. We
3: sympathetic. All of our coaches are sympathetic to that point of view. They don't push you but they're relaxed about it. They believe you can do
1: it. Super excited about this resource because, you know, we've referred some people to Mark also, but we want options for people. Uh, We do coaching. We have like a Patreon page because we we are a nonprofit. We can't get a grant because we don't check the boxes. Like we don't... I'm not going to compromise. And that's the other thing. Like I'm not willing to compromise to get your $17,000 grant and then you have to tell me what I can and can't say. And so we started a Patreon page. We have people... Every week people contact us and say, You're our only hope. It's suicide or the street. I lost my medication. I was doing great. Help me find medication on the street. So we do give them, you know, resources for for testing strips and, and naloxone because they're gonna do it. They and these aren't street savvy people, Zach. These aren't people who know what they're doing. And they're gonna go get drugs. They don't know what they're talking about. And things like safe consumption sites, it's not gonna help them because they've never shot up drugs. This is not what they're going to do. And so, you know, I I don't, do you know Nabirun Dasgupta, Dr. Dasgupta at UNC? He has like a drug testing lab. He was just named like times 100 something. He's a huge harm reduction person. He's in North Carolina. He's another one who's a huge supporter of pain patients.
3: You got a lot of guts, man. You're not, uh, you're no too little.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm passionate about it. And as I learn more, I get more passionate because the way people are being treated, it's getting worse and it's
3: to try and make you more of a misfit by uh, reinforcing your offbeat tendencies
1: good i mean and that's the thing like i yeah i mean i want to fight for what's right and what's real there has to be something behind what we're saying that's real but I, I i would love to know there's two questions before i know we've taken a lot of your time but what is your view on oxycontin being vilified oxycontin constantly every webinar, you see now it's the same. This crisis was started because of OxyContin. This crisis was started before because of Purdue. And then what would I really want to know is, is there hope out of this? Are pain patients ever going to be treated like human beings again? Or are they going to do what Kalani said and wait till they all die off and never get opioids again?
2: How long you got?
1: (laughs) As long as you can talk. I'm here with you.
2: I don't know what the, you know, we've done a lot of talking about the plight of pain patients. I don't know what what will happen in the future of of course anybody who's listening to your channel will agree so it's almost like i will preach to the choir
3: yeah but
2: but the idea that a drug has an intellectual draw that caused human beings to be connected to it in some way that was destructive is folly nonsense you know it's just it's just magical mystical thinking and an excuse uh for not treating well the people who are Disparaged in our country enough that they would rely on uh, a drug or other sorts of involvements in their life instead of things that could be more pro social or better for their lives. So, that's yeah. that's that's a, new answer. I well, I
1: that's
3: a great answer. I love that. <laughs> I'm people are. you know, the AMA and the Pain Painkillers Association have come out against all these restrictions on painkillers.
1: But no one cares. Like, that's the thing. The CDC's like, oh, well, you know, here's the thing. When those guidelines came out in 2016, doctor after doctor after doctor were like, this is going to kill people. You can't yeah. do this. But then... Then they came out and now they're like, oh, it was unintended. It was, they, you knew it was going to happen. You were told it was going to happen. FDA, CDC came out with a with a uh, clarification 2019. It did nothing and because doctors are scared. This is the thing. Doctors are afraid. And until the DOJ, medical boards, regulatory agencies, payers, until they back off, I don't blame doctors for not cutting patients off. But they're watching dope sick. And they believe it more than the average. They do. Person. No, they do. They they quote it as real. They quote it as like factual. And the the it it is getting worse. It's going this litigation funding is going to make it worse because it's going into bolstering the PDMP, bolstering risk scores. Limiting prescribing
3: even more, giving You're payers right, it's more mainstream and more online with scientific and medical recommendation A lot of providers, isn't yeah. that strange? It's it's mm.
1: crazy. It makes no look. My favorite thing when that dopamine that that video did about Lemke, when you were like, here's a doctor who actually said that opioids. <laughs> don't increase function and reduce pain like this is and and they're all like yeah that's so true it doesn't opioids really don't help pain so all of a sudden after thousands and thousands and thousands of years opium does nothing to help pain like everyone's just lying and 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 lemke longs for the days when people didn't want to use anesthesia because pain was you know good according to lemke and narrows the
2: argument to to like whether it does or doesn't treat pain and um sorry stanton i stepped on your toes and i think you're going somewhere it's just it's just i i like pulling back even more it's it's a substance it's it's um right you know people people use substances for the reasons they use them
3: um the
2: idea that there has to be an established medical narrative around what a thing does at large for people not just what it could do for you or why you might prefer it, or, or how this fits in with your the life that you want to live, and right. and, and betterment. I, I mean, that it just really constri- constricts the argument to. Does it treat pain? Doesn't it treat pain? Well, how do we prove that? Let's look at some studies. And it takes the the human being who's being treated out of the equation. That's Uh.
1: exactly what's happened. And then you have this precision medicine when now they're like, oh, well, if you have a double mastectomy, you should get zero to five pills. And I'm not making that up. That's what they say. And we've had people with a leg amputation who were given IV Tylenol in the hospital and they're being told they're too high risk of addiction and they can't get their pain treated. But you're right though, Zach, because if you ask anyone who has physical pain and they take opioids, I'm going to tell you. Chances are, they're also taking it for some kind of emotional pain. Like you can't. It's not so narrow that you can say this is only for this pain. It doesn't help me relax. It's only for this. It doesn't help this. Like, but again, who right. are they? Don't worry. It's me? not
2: helping. It's not helping relax. Don't worry. Well, you let know, me. You have to. Yeah, just, but yeah. that's
1: no. Let me tell you. We had some patients whose doctors said to them, "We're going to stop your opioids and we're going to see if your depression." This is true. We're going to see if your depression gets worse. If you come off of opioids and your depression also gets worse, we can't put you back on because that means it was also treating your depression that's for real that's a real story like it's so ridiculous and and it it it's like the twilight zone every day i'm like i'm mu- i must be living in the twilight zone and these people are given the platform repeatedly and and they're the ones you know spoken to by media we need people like you to, to to speak to media and be like no this is this is wrong like this information is wrong these people don't have a broken brain disease for the rest of their life i like zach Siegel, is that his last name? He speaks about that sometimes. He's like, what? We're telling people they're broken for the rest of their life and that's supposed to be compassion. Like that doesn't make any sense. Mm.
3: You're really getting to the basic thing that, uh, if there's one thing that draws me and Zach together, it's that neither of us, given our, I'm 77, he's like 40 years younger than me. He works with students and you know, I've always worked in addiction. I do have children and grandchildren. I would never, ever, ever, neither of us would ever, ever say to a person, oh, you've got, you're broken. Who would say that to a kid or a student?
1: And that's supposed to be compassionate.
3: You're you're never going to be a normal, functioning, positive, would say that.
1: Who does and that's what they do every day to people all the time. And I don't then, want to
2: get my. Oh, I'm sorry, Bev.
1: No, go. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want to
2: get myself in trouble, so I'll say uh, I'll give an example of something that happened at a school, and then I'll say let's say it happened in the past ten years. Okay. Um, <laughs> we, we were talking about a student and that student being diagnosed with something. There's a psychologist that came in and evaluated the student, and the psychologist said, "Well." We categorize it, was the most common sense, like thoughtful psychologist I think I've met on this basis for coming in and, yeah. and referring people. I think she was sort of like on her way out or something. And she said, Okay, all right. So, diagnosis, explaining to people a diagnosis is a bunch, it's a category. It's like a bunch of stuff we're observing about a person. And we're saying that based on this, maybe there are more things we could do to help. The downside of it is that a diagnosis is that you kind of lock somebody in and it's difficult, especially for a student to advocate for her or himself to say, I don't want this shit anymore. <clears throat> so uh, she left it at that. And then we, the school, not me, but the school pushed for this kid to have, to be diagnosed with a, B and C. And I was actually not invited to the table in this case, but okay. as it often happens, um, I have built a strong relationship and understand the student to the extent that, I'm I'm a good liaison when people want to understand, all right, well, how does this, how how do you get this person to do this? Or how do you talk to this person about that? They bring me to the table. So eventually I was at a round table discussion about this student where people were saying, well, we've got to get this kid diagnosed because then there could be special help available. And I said, I was reading the psychologist notes and it was just interesting what she put out there. The psychologist wasn't here. So... Let's just say this, if if we, if we she were diagnosed with something, does that, are there more resources that we would have more money for or something that we're giving the kid? And actually in this case, I was ready for the answer to be no. Uh, I was ready for the answer to be yes, but the answer was, well, not really. She'd be under the auspices now of special education. So she could have a different learning track. And I asked, what? so would that mean we're hiring different personnel in our school to do it? And they said, no, we just do, put the special educator and I said, so we have all the same resources at our disposal, um, it's just now the kid's diagnosed and we now we have permission to put her on a different track. And I said, right, and that's the track she could be on. And so basically at the end, without being too mean, I said, can't we just say, look, we have a nice description of what this kid's needs might be, and then get our shit together and give the kid what she needs? You know, yeah, and then we can say. throw away the label. Um, well, ultimately, well, people were split on that. There were some okay. head nods and there was some, well, that's not the way the idea of, well, that's not the way it works to, you know, this person does this job and this person does this job. Ultimately the, the person was not diagnosed with something. Oh, you know. good. Ultim- ultimately, you j- Ultimately has grown up a little while now and, and is doing really well but see, um,
3: I, I love that would you like
2: actually to see a videotape
3: of zach doing that yeah no like...
1: i love yes i'm fascinated i'm like i you guys have to come that, back on because you're... i'm i'm i want to learn from everything you guys have to say because i've always wondered this if you're going to tell someone uh, like I have two kids, both of them, I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old, right? But if if you're going to diagnose people either in childhood with all of these different things, or even um, as an adult or or child with addiction, and you tell them they're never going to get better, doesn't that create like a self fulfilling prophecy? Because then they're going to be like, Oh, well, I can never I can never get straight A's because I have this illness, I can never do this. I'm always can't they give them a reason just to keep drinking because they're like, Oh, well, I'll never get better anyway. Doesn't that just do exactly the opposite of what we're wanting to do?
2: i think so
3: zach's only been married once that's his plan i've only been <laughs> married uh, i've only been married once and i'm divorced, me too <laughs> but i was together 30 years with my wife and we shared certain values so our oldest son was pretty hyperactive so we went into the counselor and the counselor said well we think we want to diagnose him with adhd and give him in those days they used to give him ritalin or what's the other drug they give you for adhd Adder- adderall uh,
2: yeah, Adderall or Five Ants or whatever. And
3: without yeah. looking at each other, me and my wife both just took her head no. Yeah, yeah. Just, and I said, well, that's a good thing about us. We're good on that. My son now is a very high-level techie. No,
1: oh,
3: nice. And so, sometimes I'll be in a park, and he has three kids, and they're running around, and he's got a book open. And I'll say, Dana, what are those symbols in the book? And he said, well they're machine language, they're not actually software. And I say, oh, you know that machine language? And he says, no, I don't really, I just figure it out because I know some other machine languages. And I'm saying, so this kid has ADHD, kids are running around screaming in the park and he's reading a book that looks like it's in a foreign language (laughs) and filling in all the gaps as he's doing it.
1: And if they had their way, he That'd would have been be on Adderall forever, or Ritalin, and diagnosed and treated like
3: he had no future. And he gets mm-hmm. pretty yeah. paid pretty well to do that. Let's good just for- put it that way. Good for him. Yeah. All yeah. right, Beth. This has been the most fun we ever had. And, uh... <laughs> I
1: would love to have you guys back on, though, because you give me hope. Because I feel like when I talk to Maya and Carl and other people with like similar, I feel like there's hope. Because I often feel like I'm in the twilight zone because well, no when one. You look
3: at my uh, my memoir is called "The Scientific Life When the Edge." The most amazing thing about me is that we had this discussion about how everybody disagrees with me, but I did raise three kids and I did send one to Penn and one to NYU, and I. I do. Yeah. I'm not to make a living. Take a look at my, take a look at my memoir. How do you live yeah. against the mainstream, but still be a productive yeah, citizen? Yeah. I'm
1: going to get, cause I give you so much credit. Cause you were talking about this before, way before anyone else was ever talking about this disease theory of addiction. And, and I, I'm telling you that drug policy Alliance one, I found very interesting because you, you talk uh, about.
3: You both Carl Hart and Maya Salovez. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you learn much from Stan Peel? Was he somebody you tuned yeah. into very early. They'll both say I'm at the beginning of the movement of the sword.
1: Definitely. And I, I've listened to, I didn't listen to the most recent podcast, but we share them on our Patreon page. And, and because we, ha- I do think we need to join forces with, other leaders who are of like mind it doesn't matter if it's for one aspect or the other but to try to counteract this false narrative because it's
3: well i i can speak for both of us babe we love you no oh, thank our... you uh, <laughs> thank we you we need all the help we can get still we're still yeah. minority we're minority voices yeah. so we're we're on your team buddy thank you yeah. if there's anything
1: we could do to collaborate anything that you guys you know, we'd love to come on your podcast or come back on ours, please, because we have a million questions for you, and um, it will give people hope for
2: sure. You're invited. You should you should come on. That would that would be a good interview, yeah, and for that. sure. And it was. Um, you said that we give you hope, and I. Yeah. Stan and I were talking last night. We didn't know you totally, so yeah. we always have to come into this thing like, all right, let's be cool. Yeah, Who knows yeah. what they're going to believe or think or try to espouse? Yeah, yeah, so course. all right, let's be calm. And so the, to hear you talk
3: me down, I was about, oh, to no. Come
2: no, no, about <laughs> <to come> no, <laughs> no, and it's not like that. It's not that bad, but you know, yeah. you always have, have to well, think about know. that. Yeah. it's, it's a difficult situation, you know, it's a tense situation. It can be. Um, yeah. And so to hear you talk about the things that you believe in just such a fundamentally intelligent and Thank you, kind of like a basic common sense way is, um, that's the yeah. best we could have possibly hoped for in a conversation. Oh, so we, we appreciate you and what you're doing. Yeah,
3: no, I, I thank you guys so much. This is the beginning of a that, what what did I say at the end of Casablanca? This is the beginning of a beautiful relationship. That's right.
1: That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> thank Thanks, you guys. Beth. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you would like to see the unedited video version, please head on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com/slash the Doctor Patient Forum. Thank you once again for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please follow us on Spotify, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share with anyone that you think might benefit from this information. Just a quick disclaimer, the information contained in this podcast should not be considered medical or legal advice.